Let me ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 19 this evening. Genesis chapter 19. Perhaps one of the most shocking passages in all of Scripture, uh, particularly with regard to how believers can be steeped in sin. And uh, what is God to do in such a situation? I mean, how does a believer get from a place of, like in New Testament terms, one level of glory down to a worse level of glory? See, as believers, what's supposed to be happening is that God is moving us from one level of glory to the next level of glory. But for some reason, we have here this example of Lot, who is called righteous in Second Peter, but is living in in sin and offering some very strange, uh, some very strange ideas as as a means to accommodate other people. To Lot's credit, he did not have Jesus Christ living in him through a special administration of the Holy Spirit. He also did not have the written Word of God. So, was this the case? That in the Old Testament, God was conforming Lot to be more godly like He now conforms us to be more godly? Or was this just uh, something that began when we, uh, when we were, when Jesus, after Jesus came? Let me read for you chapter 19, verses 1 through 26. We'll only study tonight verses 1 through 11, but I do want to show what happens in this whole story, and we'll come back and pick up the rest next week. So chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, whom else have you here? a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city. Bring them out of this place. For we are are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. 
Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angel, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hand of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to and it is small. Please, let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of this town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But His wife from behind from behind Him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. What is amazing is that human depravity are bend bent towards sinfulness is always at work. But what's even more amazing is that for believers, God is also at work. And we will see this, I think, more clearly next week. We'll see particularly that second part of it, that God is always at work in the life of believers despite the depravity. But, but here we're actually going to see the horror of declining spirituality. Let me begin by pointing your attention to verse 4 because we see the degradation of the city of Sodom. What a wicked city. Verse 4. Before they lay down, that is, Lot and the angels, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. So first we get the scope of their wickedness. They're about to to do a wicked act. They're about to ask for something that is uh, despicable. And in verse 4, what we see is that this is not just a few evil men in the city. But it says there in verse 4, men of the city, men of Sodom, and notice, young and old, all the people of every quarter. In other words, every male in the city was at the door of Lot's house. Every male. They had seen these two strangers as they entered the town. So they came to Lot's door and noticed their desire in verse 5. And they called to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. These people are so wicked that they're not even trying to hide what they want to do. They just come out and say it. They don't beat around the bush. Hey, can you send those two guys out so we can have a conversation with them? They want to to partake or, or, or participate in a wicked sin. This shows how utterly perverse this city is. Every male in the city is there. And they're asking to do this wicked act. 
Most people would not admit that they were even involved in this type of behavior and that these people are openly asking for it. And just to be clear, they're not talking about relations in the sense that they want to build a relationship with with those two men. Like, we want to have a conversation. We want to get to know each other a little bit better. The word there in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, is no. It's translated no. And that same word is used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. This is talking about a physical, immoral relationship. Further proof of this is found in Judges chapter 19. I I won't have you turn there, but perhaps you remember the story. When the men of Gibeah want to seduce a stranger that comes into the town. Very similar to this story. But the man instead sends out his concubine and offers her up instead. And the the, the people of the city take his concubine and they rape her until the morning and they leave her on the doorstep after she had been beaten and abused. The same word, no, is used there as well. Okay, so these men are not, they have no good intentions in trying to get these two angels out of Lot's house. They likely, by the way, didn't know that they were angels. They appeared as men and, uh, and simply strangers. That's why you don't, hear the men of the city calling them angels. They simply call them strangers. So this passage is talking about the sin of homosexuality, specifically an immoral, intimate relationship between a man and another man. Do you ever wonder why it's called sodomy? It comes straight from this wicked city. The wicked behavior of this city. Notice the force of their desire. Skip down to verse 9. When Lot refuses and offers up something else, verse 9 says, But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien already. He is acting like a judge. Stand aside. We're not going to take no for an answer. We want these men. They're willing to do violence if that's what it comes down to. In fact, that's what we'll see is is going to happen if it weren't for the angels blinding them. They quickly discard Lot as a friend. Lot had earlier called them brothers. He said, my brothers, don't do such a wicked act in verse 7. But, but here they say, Lot, who, who made you the judge of the city? We're not going to listen to you anymore. Now it's likely that Lot actually had a position of judicial rule in the city. We'll see this here in, in just a bit because he's sitting at the city gate and they're saying, don't, don't make rules over us. It's apparently what's happening is before, Lot, is, Lot is, uh, is being non-offensive in his judgments. It's, you know, he has these things come before the court and he offers up his advice as to what to do and maybe he's very ambiguous and, and non-offensive with his approach to the judgments, but here he's very clear. Don't act wickedly, Lot says. And they said, we're not listening to you. See that in verse 9? At the end of the verse it says, now we will treat you worse than them. They're ready to discard him in a hurry in order to accommodate their passions. So I want to be clear that this is a wicked city. This is what we could call the abomination of homosexuality. 
And I can't think of a stronger word than abomination. Turn to Romans chapter 1, and I'll show you what God thinks about this. Because often what we have in, in narrative passages like what we're reading, uh, we don't have a, an idea of do this, don't do that. Okay, God loves this, God doesn't love that. That comes more in, in uh, teaching books like what we have here in Romans. And uh, obviously, Romans was designed for a church there in Rome, so this this is more applicable to, to what we're talking about. You see, our society will try to fit you into its mold. Our society will try to fit you into its mold, not by be, not by forcing you to become like them, not be, by forcing you to become a homosexual, but by forcing you to excuse it. They want you to become tolerant of people who act in this way. They want you to minimize the sanctity of God-designed marriage between a man and a woman only. They want you to excuse it. But not only do they want you to excuse it, they also want you to enthusiastically approve of their sin. And if you are not going to approve their sin, then they will label you as judgmental. How dare you bring a judgment down on me? Similar to what these men of the city were doing. But let me just fill you in on a little secret. Okay, nowhere in the scriptures is this sin called a preference or an orientation or a way of life. Nowhere. Listen to these stark terms in Romans chapter one, verse twenty six. Talking about human depravity here, how depraved, how wicked people are. Verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which was unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their heir. Skip down to verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like some of the headlines you've read recently? Not only do they do the same, but they give hearty approval of those who do. So in verse 26 and 27, it says, at the very least, it's an unnatural function. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not how God designed it. It's called, notice in verse 26, degrading, degrading passions. It's called unnatural in verse 26 and verse 27. It's called, towards the end of verse 27, an indecent act. In Genesis 19, it's called wickedness. In Judges 19, it's called folly. In Leviticus 18, it's called abomination. In Leviticus 20, it's called detestable. In 1 Corinthians 6, it's called unrighteousness. In 1 Timothy 1, it's called contrary to sound teaching. And in Jude chapter 1, it's called gross immorality and going after strange flesh. Not a preference a choice to usurp the natural function that God has given to man and to woman. 
And notice Scripture's demand of it. In chapter 19, what's going to come on these perverse people of Genesis is that God's going to destroy because destroy the city because of their wickedness. Here at the end of verse 32, it says that they are worthy... Excuse me. It's uh, in the middle of verse 32. Those who practice such things are worthy of death. Okay, now, we are not the final judge on this. We aren't supposed to be going around people who are committing these acts. We need to make sure that they're worthy of death. Okay, God's the ultimate judge. He'll take care of those things. But it's not a decent act. So if you get from these passages that God somehow is okay with this sin, then you're thinking about the Bible like an unbeliever thinks about the Bible. God is not okay with this type of sin. Now let me be clear what I'm saying here. I'm not calling for us to force people to stop doing their sin. I can't think of anywhere in Scripture where it tells us that we need to stop unbelievers from doing their sin. They're sinners. They sin. And even if they stop doing it, would that make the Gospel more palatable? Would they be more acceptable in God's sight in some way that God's going to say, yeah, come on come on into my heaven now that you've stopped it. No, what do they need? They need the same thing that we need. The Gospel. They need to hear the Gospel of God's Word. So the Bible is clear that this behavior is wicked and wrong. We shouldn't force people to stop doing it, but we should never excuse it. Never excuse it. And most, most assuredly, we should not give hearty approval of it. All right, turn back to chapter 19 of Genesis. We've seen the defilement of the city, how wicked this city was, demanding um, that they have these relations. Now we'll see the defilement of Lot, surprisingly. Verse 1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, how in the world does a person sit in a gate? Either has to be a very small man, or he has to be a, have a high tolerance for pain, right? No. Uh, this is probably better translated a gateway, which was the center of the city, usually where administrative functions were carried out or judicial functions. Uh, this is where uh, would be similar to our city hall today, Okay, that area of the city where where many of these things are taken care of, government officials and judges and things like that. Now turn back to 13, chapter 13, verse 12, because I want to show you why this is significant. Chapter 13, verse 12. Lot now is at a place where the administrative, the government, the, the government is being carried out, the, the administrative and judicial functions of the city are being carried out. And this is surprising because this is a, a degrading thing for Lot. He started out, chapter 13, verse 12, says Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. So remember, Abram and Lot are standing up on top of some hill where they can see these two lands and Abram says, why don't you get first choice? I'll let you choose what you want. Of course, Lot sees a well-developed city, a a place that's uh, well-watered and things like that. And he, he takes Abram up on his on his uh, offer. 
And then apparently from chapter 13, verse 12, he moves to the outskirts of the city. Lot is probably very well aware that there's wickedness going on in the city. It's usually when you go to a place like this, you know what what kind of wickedness there is. And so Lot moved to the outskirts of the city. But look at chapter 14, verse 12. Chapter 14, verse 12, because we find that he moves in a little bit farther. This is the uh, the kings that were upset because they weren't receiving tribute like they had been before, or taxes. And uh, it says, They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. So chapter 13 says he had gone as far as Sodom. Chapter 14 says he's living in the city. And now, turn to chapter 19 again. Verse 1, notice where he is. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom. He's not just, he doesn't just have his residence there. He, he's he's uh, taken this city as his own. He's, part, he's participating in their affairs. Okay, I, I mean their governmental affairs in this case. He's settled in the midst of a wicked people, hasn't he? So he has he has moved farther and farther away from what is safety. Notice how defiled he is. Look at verse six. Sure this this jumped out at you as we read it. But Lot went out to them at the doorway. Remember they're demanding that these two men come out. And shut the door behind him, verse 7 says, and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please, let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. This is shocking. Lot goes out, outside of the house, closes the door behind him, and says, Guys, guys, okay, settle down. Okay, I know you're, you're very... Uh, set on getting what you want, but let me give you something else instead. Let me give you my daughters who have never had relations with a man. Let me give you them instead. You can do to them whatever you please. Reminds me of the spineless pilot who is unwilling to call sin, sin. He knows that the, the Christ should not be crucified, and yet instead he equivocates and does the unthinkable and says, you know what? Fine. Release Barabbas. Crucify this man. Spinelessness. This is, what Lot, this is where Lot is. Instead of saying, rebuking them and saying, how dare you? He can only go as far as saying, verse 7, don't act wickedly. It's as far as he goes. But then he offers up his daughter's. I mean, we, we shudder to think about the depravity of this man, but, but, we learn, but what we learn about him is that he simply valued something more than his family. He valued something more than his family. Now, it's hard for us to understand this, but, but when we put it in stark terms, it comes out like this. Here are my two virgin daughters. Do whatever you like. But do you realize in a lesser way we make choices about our sin as well. We value something more than, in some cases, our family. We sacrifice our, our families on the altar of our own pleasure or our own power. And we may not go this far and do something as wicked as Lot, 
But sin is all about choices. It's all about value systems. It's about choosing one thing over another. What is Lot choosing over his family in this case? Is it protection of his own body? Perhaps. I think more likely it's the protection of these strangers. He wants to make sure that they're protected. We'll see this here in just a bit. But that's what sin is. It's values. It's choosing what we think is going to give us the most pleasure. What's sad is that Lot actually had a good intention. It's no excuse for offering up his family, certainly. No excuse. What I'm trying to explain to you is that all choices are based on our value systems. We choose the thing that we value most. For example, hey, this isn't uh, with regard to sin or anything like that, but when we go to the grocery store or we go to the electronic store, wherever we go, we buy a certain thing because we think that that item is more valuable than the money that we have in our pocket. Sometimes when that item is too highly priced, we don't buy it. Because we, we think our money is more valuable in that case, right? The same thing is true about our obedience to God and our sin. What is it that you value most? If you value the pleasure of your own sin, then you will happily discard God and His commands. You'll happily choose your own desires. You'll happily... Get, get rid of God's promises, God's desire for you, God's plan for you, and even, in Lot's case, his own family's well-being. When you head down that road, it's a dead end. When you choose something else over God, it is a dead end. And before long, you'll find yourself discarding the things that you valued most. You may have at one time valued the Scripture, held it up in high regard, chose that over the pleasures of this world. But when you start heading down that path, sometimes what happens is you begin to discard the Scriptures altogether. Obedience is about values. Disobedience is about values. What is it that you value most? What is it that you treasure most? Do you treasure Christ more than anything else in this world? Someone gave you a certain amount of money to do a certain thing that was evil, that it was against God, would you take it? What do you value most? Or is it that you value your sin more than your family? Or your sin more than your relationship with people here at this church? This is very disheartening. And you can probably tell how disheartening this passage is just from the sound in the room, how quiet it is throughout this whole first part of the sermon. But let me assure you, there is hope in this passage that we serve a merciful God. We will see God's mercy very clearly, I think, next week, but we'll see a glimpse of it here today. Look at verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. The story begins with Lot 
protecting the strangers. But when we get to verse 10, we find that the angels are the ones who are protecting Lot, right? The angels are protecting Lot. Lot's in a place where he could be attacked and beaten and killed in order for them to get in the house and take these strangers by force. So the angels protect Lot from these wicked men. And it says that they are struck with blindness. It's not that their eyeballs were removed, but they were like sinners are in many ways. They're walking around with their eyes open, but as John Calvin say, says, completely unable to see anything. The purpose of this blindness was protection. They're unable to find the door. They wearied themselves. They, they worked up trying to find the door and they couldn't because everything was dark. They could not see. We see a lot more about God's mercy next week, but I want to show you something that may surprise you in this passage. Turn back to verse 1. Something that may surprise you, and that is the faith of Lot. The faith of Lot. We begin this passage by seeing Lot's love for strangers. Notice verse 1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Okay, the two angels had just come from where? Do you remember in chapter 18? They just come from talking to Abraham. And they were talking to him about the, the fact that, um, that Sarah was going to bear a son. That was at the beginning of chapter 18. Then they head off to Sodom, the two, the two angels, to see how much wickedness there was in the city and if it was worthy of judgment, while the Lord stays back and talks to Abraham. And the Lord talks to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy this city. And Abraham, of course, argues with him and says, no, not argues, but, but tries to understand the situation. He says, but, but how could you destroy the righteous with the wicked? If there are 50 righteous people in the city, will you spare it? Remember how the story goes. He gets all the way down to 10, and of course, there are not even 10 righteous people in the city. So the two angels come down to Sodom. They come to the gate of the city. There's Lot. Notice he treats them exactly like Abraham treats them. He bows his face down to the ground. Look at 18.2. Chapter 18, verse 2. When he, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the earth. Lot treats these strangers like Abraham treated them. With dignity. With respect. Notice verse 2 of chapter 19. In our passage, chapter 19, verse 2. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night. What is Lot calling himself there? He's calling himself a servant, and he'll later say, My lords, please, my lords. He says it on a couple of occasions. So he reckons recognizes them as his master in a sense. You see, in the ancient Near East during this time, they would treat strangers with great dignity, with respect, as people who are, uh, were greater than they in many ways. And so he, he calls himself a servant. That's exactly what Abraham did in chapter 18, verse 3. And then you remember what Abraham did after that? He said, please stay here under the shade of this tree, and I'm going to fix you something to eat. He kills a fatted calf. 
he, he has Sarah prepare some unleavened bread, probably couldn't make a full leavened loaf, so she, she makes something quick, these flat cakes that could be eaten. And in fact, we find a Lot doing a very similar thing. He shows hospitality to them. He shows love to them. His hospitality is seen in verse 2. It says, And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go on your way. Two reasons for Lot's hospitality. One, to take care of their needs. Two, to protect them. See, Lot didn't know that these were angels. And he's protecting them from the wickedness of the city. We saw that earlier, didn't we? When we get down to verses 8 and 9 and in there, he says, no, 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 you're not going to touch these strangers. comes outside of the house to stop them. He offers up something else, which obviously we shouldn't excuse. But, but what we find is that Lot is trying to protect these men. And what do they say? The end of verse 2 says, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Now what do you suppose a square is? Is it a shape with four sides of equal lengths? Well, yeah, but that's not what we're talking about here, right? What are we talking about? We're talking about the, the open space near the city gateway. It's like the center of the city, we could say. The center of where activity takes place where public gatherings were held. Second Chronicles talks about this, the square being this place. And the reason that the angels decline his hospitality of coming in and, and being protected by him was that they wanted to see firsthand the wickedness of the city. And so they felt, we're going to stay in the square. We're going to we're spend the night in the square, maybe even underneath the tree. And remember, they're, they're probably not very well developed like we are, where you have hotels and inns and those sorts of things, they very likely would have stayed underneath the tree. And the narrative proves that Lot is willing to protect them almost at any cost. Imagine what the men of Sodom would have done to these angels or would have tried to do if they spent the night in the city square. So Lot's set on being hospitable to them. And verse 3 talks about his protection of them. Verse 3, Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Hey, look down to verse 6. Lot went out to meet them in the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Hey, again, he, first in verse 3 it says, He urged them strongly. Verse 6, he goes out himself. He doesn't just say, hey, through the window, don't do that, guys. Back off. He's willing to sacrifice his own protection for the sake of these two men. He recognizes what these men want to do to them. That's why in verse 7 he says, do not act wickedly. And even in verse 8, when he offers up his daughters, which was a very wicked thing to do, he says the reason why. Look at verse 8. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do nothing and do to them whatever you like. Notice the reason. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Okay? His, his value system is really messed up, right? Offering his daughters like this. 
But what were his intentions? This does not make what he did right. I'm not suggesting that, okay? But what were his intentions? You see, Lot had degraded to such a point where he was having trouble seeing what what was up and what was down spiritually. But for him, he still did have some sort of spiritual compass that for them to take advantage of these strangers was not right. So he tries to protect them the best way that he knew how, and sadly, he didn't know a very good way, did he? For Lot, his value system including protecting these guests, being hospitable to them. That's why he says, only do nothing to these men. Now, perhaps you're thinking right now, I don't see how you could possibly say that Lot is a righteous person. How could you possibly say that? You're reading in too much to these things. Turn to Second Peter chapter 2, because this is actually where I know for a fact that he was a righteous man. Second Peter chapter 2. And now what I'd like to show you here in this passage is I want you to be able to see Lot as God sees Lot. Hey, look at verse 6 with me. If he, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Okay, the first clue that we get is very straightforward that Lot is a righteous man is that he's called by God a righteous man. See that in verse 7? And if he rescued righteous Lot. Now we could argue, well, he probably came to an understanding about God and faith in God after he got out of Sodom. That's what really was going on. But notice the text is very clear that he was, verse 7, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. In verse 8, it makes it even more clear. For by what he saw and heard that righteous man, again, call him a righteous man while he was there, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Okay, There are three important words that we should pull from this passage. Number one, righteous lot. Verse 7. The second is in verse 7, the very next word, and that is that he was oppressed. He was oppressed by the sensual conduct that was going on all around him. It was bothersome to him. It was oppressive. It was, it, it was, uh, it was difficult to live in those circumstances. Verse 8, at the end of the verse, says that his soul tormented, his righteous soul was tormented day after day. Are you amazed at God's mercy to believers? You see, God didn't see Lot primarily as a wicked person involved in wicked acts, defiled, degrading in his spiritual life. How did God see Lot? 
God saw Lot as a righteous man who was oppressed by the sensuality of his town and was tormented, verse 8, day after day because of their sin. The question we tend to ask is, how can Lot be so wicked and get away with it? How can God not judge him too? But the question that God's most concerned with asking is, how can I preserve my righteous servant? How can I preserve my righteous servant? Now, how could this be? Are we missing something here? How can God see Lot as righteous? Are we reading the same narrative that God's reading? That God knows about? Does God know something we don't know? Remember, for God to call anyone righteous has nothing to do with their works and everything to do with Lot's faith. Turn back to Genesis chapter 15. Because Moses had already talked to us about how God justifies a person. That is, how God sees a person as righteous. Is it because of what they do? No. Genesis 15 verse 6 talks about Abram and the promise that comes from God. In verse 6 of chapter 15 it says, Then he believed in the Lord, he had faith in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. How was, Lot, how was Abraham, or Abram here, how was he seen as righteous before God? Was it because of all the piling up of works that he had done? No. The text is clear that it was because of his faith. Romans 1.17 says, The just shall live by faith. It doesn't say the just shall live by works. It says the just shall live by faith. And what Genesis teaches us is that no believer is perfect. Lot is a great example of that, right? No believer is perfect. And if you think about it, all the other ones that we've looked at aren't perfect either. See, we, we make superheroes out of Bible characters. And the real superhero in the Bible is God. And we make superheroes out of them like they, they never did any wrong. Once they got to a certain level in their life, they really obeyed God and never disobeyed God. That's not what takes place in the Scriptures. These are real people dealing with real struggles just like you and me. Lot, of course, is a great example of believers who are not perfect, but Abraham is too. Do you remember? After this passage, Genesis 15, what does Abraham do? Or what does Abram do? Remember, he offers his wife, his wife's body, his wife's purity to the, the king of Egypt there. Chapter 20, we're almost there. We're in chapter 19 now, but when we get to chapter 20, we're going to see he does it again to King Abimelech. Has Abraham got it all figured out? Does God see Abraham on the basis of his works? God sees people. God sees believers on the basis of their faith. Whether or not they believe what he said was true. And what we learn from... Second Peter and this passage here in Genesis 19 is that God sees Lot on the basis of his faith, 
not on his works. Noah, of course, you remember, got drunk after he got off the ark. We could go through all of the characters in the book of Genesis. All the the godly characters in the book of Genesis. We find flaws in all of them. Sinful habits that they participate in. So what I'm trying to do here is not excuse. I'm not trying to excuse Lot's sin by any means. I'm trying to show you that God is merciful to those who have faith. You see, if God treated you and me on the basis of our works, we would be condemned, wouldn't we? But praise God that He treats you and me not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of whether we believe or not. And Lot acts as a good example for us to follow here in 2 Peter 2. He was oppressed by the sensuality of the city. He was tormented day after day by their sin. Can that be? Is that true of you? you say, well, I would never do anything that Lot would have would have done there, or had done there. Are, are there any sins that distress you day after day? Sins that are not yours, sins that you see and say, wow, that is despicable before God. What about the sin in which you participate? Is there? Is there any red flags that go up in your mind? Or is that okay? See, at least for Lot, he had a bit of distress, didn't he? He was oppressed. And he was he was troubled day after day because of their sin. Let me leave you with four points of application. Number one. Like with Lot, sin left alone only gets worse. Sin left alone only gets worse. Make sure that you work hard to see sin as God sees it. Don't ever get comfortable in your sin. Don't ever dismiss your sin and say, well, God doesn't really care. See, God sees me on the basis of my faith, so how I act doesn't matter. That's not the point of this passage. That's not the point of Second Peter 2. You should never be comfortable with our sin because we recognize what God saved us from. Number two, this passage is not primarily about the corruption of the surrounding world. It's not primarily about the sin of Sodom. It's not about physically removing ourselves from a city that is wicked. Otherwise, if we had to remove ourselves from a wicked city, where would we have to go according to Jesus' prayer? We have to go out of the world, right? There are immoral people all around. That's not the point of this passage. Okay, You're living in a wicked city. You need to move outside of the city. Don't live in the gateway of the city. The passage is about God justifying sinners on the basis of faith. God justifies sinners by faith. He treats them as if they were righteous, even though they're not. That's what justification is. It's God seeing us as righteous. And our justification comes through Christ. We believe that Christ died for us, that He rose for us, that He lives for us, that He is the Son of God. Are you amazed at God's grace for you? 
Or are you like the Pharisees thinking you don't need it? I, I don't really need God's grace. I'm good enough on my own. Do you despise others when they receive God's grace? That's what the Pharisees often did. So this passage is not primarily about removing ourselves from a corrupt world. Number three, this passage is not about the guaranteed effects of sin. It's not about the guaranteed effects of sin. In other words, once a believer heads down a certain sinful road, then he has to always end in the dead end. It's always going to end disastrously. That's not what this is about. Generally speaking, Proverbs says that that is true. You head down the path of sin. You head down the path of, of sensual pleasure. It's going to be deadly. That's the general pattern. But that's not guaranteed. Remember, Proverbs is speaking generically or generally and doesn't intend to talk about all the exceptions. So there's something missing here in that evaluation that the Proverbs gives. And purposely so. General pattern is that when we head into sin, we're going to end in disaster. But we also have to bring into the equation God. That God rescues sinners, doesn't He? Even when they head down those paths. That's what happens here. We're going to see this very clearly next week. Lot heads down a wicked path. And yet God spares him. You see, God is a merciful God. He pursues sinners like you and me. So let me conclude by talking about the beauty of the church. You say, well, where in the world did you find the church in this passage? Lot had been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us as believers that we should not be hardened that we should join together day after day so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You want to know how you can avoid getting blinded in a way like Lot was getting blinded? Way you avoid getting your heart hardened to sin? To get comfortable in it? It's by joining together with believers often. Ephesians 4 talks about each joint supplying and speaking the truth in love. You see, there's nothing magical about this building. About walking into this building, now I'm, I'm protected from the sin of this world. There's nothing magical about coming here. There's nothing magical about meeting with believers necessarily. But there is something spiritually refreshing. Spiritually refreshing, encouraging, uplifting... When believers are encouraging one another, speaking the truth to one another in love, and are continually praying for them, encouraging them to persevere. How's it going with you? How can I pray for you better? How can I help hold you up? How can we keep each other accountable? I'm struggling too. Right? The church not only in, in the interaction that goes on, but also in the teaching. should be. We should be encouraged and not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because we're hearing the Scriptures and responding to it. See, I, I believe Lot would have benefited from a local church. I believe that Lot would have benefited from a completed Bible 
Lot would have benefited from knowing that Jesus Christ died for him. Lot didn't have all these things that we have. So what's our excuse? Why do we why does our lives degrade into more sin? Why do we excuse our sin when we have completed revelation, we have a body of believers nearby that we can participate in? We have Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. We have all these things. We have no excuse. Do you realize how good you have it as a 21st century believer? Do you recognize God's mercy, God's power in pursuing you? Where you're going to be, where you're going to find encouraging is that next week we see even more of God's mercy and His rescue of Lot. Lot did not deserve it. But you know what? We don't deserve anything we receive from God. And praise God that He still pursues us. Even after we've been saved, we still go after the sin that we enjoy. And God pursues us. He brings us back. And we're able to be restored to fellowship with Him. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we are... uh, shocked in many ways by the sin of Lot and the people of the city, but we're also not surprised in other ways because we recognize that we're all capable of the worst type of sins. The only reason we have not committed them is because of Your mercy, because You've not put us in that position. You've given us good upbringing, Good church, given us the scriptures in our language, given us people that care about us. So when we started to toe the line and maybe head off in the wrong direction, we had we were able to see your mercy reaching out to us through people, through your word, different ways in order to bring us back on the right path. And so we are amazed at your mercy. We want to praise you for your grace in our lives and we want to use what positive example we can get from Lot in our lives. At least be distressed about the sin in the world. We may not take much from his treatment of it by offering something despicable in place of the sin that was being committed, but we do recognize that he was a man who desired to please you and who is seen as righteous by you because of his faith. We want to be people of faith. We don't want to count in our works because in the day of Jesus Christ, they'll all be burned up. We want to count on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.